Good morning, everybody. I want to start off by uh, letting you know I read a lot of things online, mostly news, uh, sports, uh, current events and stuff. But I have to confess, I was drawn this week to this awful clickbait article. Uh, it was a, basically an article about marriage proposals that had gone wrong. And as I was reading how each of these train wrecks were unfolding, there was one particular common theme. A lot of times it was a man who would be completely infatuated with a woman who ends up rejecting him for a couple of reasons. A, because number one, the man doesn't really love her. He doesn't actually know how she feels. He loves the idea of her, but he actually doesn't know her that well, hasn't really bothered to spend the time to understand her. And so that's why he didn't anticipate what would happen as a result. And then B, they often lacked a grasp of the reality of the relationship because of a failure to communicate with that person. They didn't bother to invest the time and the effort to discover how does this person really feel? What does this person really want? And so in popular vernacular terms, we would say that what they needed to have was to have a DTR. Now, for those of you who are familiar with that term, it means that these men needed to sit down with this person and have honest conversations to define the relationship, DTR. And it's important because a DTR lets us know where we stand with the other person, how to relate to them so that we're not asking too much or giving too little to that person. And we're all clear on the expectations and the direction of where this relationship is headed. And so I want to start off this morning by asking you, how would you define the relationship you have with God. And what we're talking about is more than simply how you feel. I feel close to God. I feel distant from God. I feel apathetic. But we're talking about what defines the expectations in this relationship. How do you relate to each other? And what are those privileges and responsibilities in that relationship? So if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Hebrews chapter 8. We're in this series called Anchored where we're discovering as turbulence in life causes us to drift, that Jesus is a better anchor of hope for our souls. That for the Hebrew Christians back then and for us today, that as we're engulfed by our troubles, there's a temptation for us to turn away from our faith. And this letter is a call for us to hang on to Jesus because he is greater than all the people, all the pursuits and all the possibilities in which we often place our hope otherwise. And last time, we learned in chapter 7 that the central theme of Hebrews is that there is a high priest and that this high priest is the one who mediates the relationship between men and God. And that in the Old Testament, he was the only person who was allowed into the inner room of the tabernacle worship tent to be able to approach the presence of God and make sacrifices for the sins of all the people so that we can all be reconciled with him. And so, what we've been learning in chapter 7 was that Jesus is the greater high priest who is constantly, constantly interceding on our behalf. That he has made this great sacrifice for us and he constantly talks to and prays to and intercedes with the Father so that we, you and I, would never fall away from Jesus if we've come to follow him. Now, today in chapter 8, when we talk about DTRing with God, the Bible uses a very relational term. It's called a covenant, and it's central to Jesus being the better high priest throughout the Bible. 
And so let's define that term. A covenant is a binding oath or promise, like an arrangement or an agreement. But it's a binding promise that defines the relationship between God and people. And it's more than just when someone gives their word. A a covenant is a binding legal and spiritual contract. It has a clear set of expectations of privileges and responsibilities, and it defines how has this relationship changed? What are the changes in this relationship between these two parties? And so I want you to think of it as more than a contract, like it's not like a prenuptial agreement. Instead, think of it more like a wedding covenant that's made between a man and a woman and between God. It's that promise that that you're making to this person that you will have and hold them from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish, forsaking all others for as long as you both shall live. And so it outlines the expectations and the responsibilities of each person in this relationship. And it changes the relationship as the two become one. And so covenants in the Bible were always mediated by the high priest between people and God. He would represent God to the people by administering the instructions and the commands and the law of God. And then he would represent the people to God by obeying the covenant and approaching the presence of God in that tabernacle tent to make sacrifices for our sins and for thanksgiving on behalf of Israel. And so we're going to see how Jesus is the better high priest and how he is the minister of a new and better covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And so, like every good DTR, we start by making sure we know the other person. And so before we can claim that we love Jesus, let's get to know him. And there's the magnitude of how he is a much greater high priest than all the other ones who've come before him. And so we see here in verses 1 and 2 that the priests of the past would minister in earthly tents. But fulfilling Psalm 110 verse 1, Jesus ministers our relationship with God in the true tabernacle in heaven, sitting at the right hand of glory. And so that means that he is the only one who is worthy to sit behind, beside the Father because he is the true Son of God. He is the only one with the authority and the ability and access to meet the needs of the people because he is the true high priest making sacrifices, sitting next to his Father. In verses 3 and 4, earthly priests would make unending offerings and sacrifices to God. But 
Jesus, as the heavenly high priest, also made a final sacrifice and sits down because it is finished. Earthly priests have to come from the priestly line of Levi, according to the Old Covenant. And Jesus wouldn't even qualify because he's not from the priestly line. He's from the kingly line of Judah. But he's a better priest because he's in the order of Melchizedek forever, as we learned in previous chapters. So why is this heavenly high priest and why is his ministry so much better than all the old things of the past? Here's the key. Verse 5. Because all the earthly priests only serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. And giving an example, he quotes from Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, when Moses was alone with God for 40 days and 40 nights up at the top of Mount Sinai, receiving fellowship with him, receiving instruction, receiving the old covenant law written on two stone tablets. It also included instructions on how to prepare this worship center, the tabernacle tent where the Ark of the Covenant would dwell, where the very presence of God would manifest with the people. And God says to to Moses in Exodus 25, verse 40, what I want you to do to make this tabernacle is copy the pattern that you saw while you were up here on the mountain with me. This vision as you're talking with me that you got to see the grandiose heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle of heaven. And so what we're discovering in this passage is that every piece, every part of this old covenant worship, the priests, the tabernacle, the ark, the sacrifices, all the rules and regulations, these are just a shadow. These are just shadows patterned after something better, something heavenly. And so I think about it this way. Yesterday, uh, my father-in-law came over to our house and he was kind of uh, working in our backyard. And our one-year-old son, Chili, He's fascinated by watching his grandpa's shadow that was being cast moving back and forth across the curtain that's uh, on, on the, over the glass door of our backyard. And uh, uh, Chili, he just, he couldn't figure out what in the world it was. So he kept trying to grab at this elusive object, this shadow. And he even walked up to the curtain and puts his mouth on it. And so the problem with a shadow is that you can't touch it. You can't hug it. You can't eat it. A shadow has no substance by itself. It only shows you the shape, the outline of the real thing. And so the goal isn't to look at the shadow. The goal is to to get you to look up, to look to the one who is casting that shadow. And so when we talk about being followers of Jesus, when we talk about obeying his word throughout the Bible, why aren't you and I simply New Testament Christian, uh, New Testament Jewish people today. Why aren't we required to practice circumcision with our male children? Why don't we give a 10% tithe plus all the other Old Testament offerings that added up to probably about a third of the average Hebrew person's income? Why don't you and I have to refrain from bacon or refrain from bloody medium rare steaks? Why don't we have to observe all the Old Testament rules? Because they're just shadows that point to the holiness and the goodness of God. But in verse 6, it says to us that Jesus has a greater ministry as the heavenly, as the ultimate high priest. That the new covenant relationship that he mediates for us isn't just a shadow. It's the real thing. It is the greater thing. And it's built on better promises, which we'll explore a little bit more later. So the big idea for this morning's text 
as we DTR with God, as we define our relationship with God, is that we worship God, we approach God, we draw close to God by our high priest's new and better covenant instead of its shadow. That Jesus is a better high priest. He's an alternative to the human limited line of Levi. And he ministers to us from a better heavenly tabernacle that he offers a better sacrifice for sin himself at the cross. He arranges a better covenant relationship between us and the Father. And he gives us better promises for that relationship. So I want to ask you, are you approaching God by following Jesus, this better high priest, or are you simply chasing shadows? Are you just checking the boxes of all the traditions and religions and religious works that you're supposed to do, or are you relying on a savior to minister to your soul? Well, that's all all good and well, but we need to explore if we're defining the relationship this morning, why did it have to change? What was it that caused this relational connection to have to change? Let's read on in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So in verse 7, the Bible tells us that we wouldn't need a second covenant if if everything was fine with the first one. That even though the first one is just the shadows of the righteousness and the promises of God, the problem isn't on the old covenant side of the relationship. God and his law are without fault. Instead, in verse 8, it says that God find faults with them. Not it, not the covenant, with them. Who? So the second half of verse 8 and through verse 9, he starts quoting from an old prophecy in Jeremiah 31 that prophesied a day when the relationship between people and God would have to change, that the Lord would replace the old covenant with a new one. Why? Verse 9, for they, God's people, did not continue in my covenant. And so the picture there is that even though Israel experienced all of God's supernatural deliverance from slavery and death in Egypt, they watched as he supernaturally parted the Red Sea and destroyed the armies of Egypt. They saw him rain bread from heaven when they were hungry, water from rocks when they were thirsty, yet repeatedly they would turn away from God in their unbelief. That over and over, despite experiencing the goodness of God, they refused to trust him and obey him when they had literally tasted his goodness, his power, and his promises. And so, in Numbers chapter 14, at the precipice of the promised land, they balked at a report about the obstacles and enemies in the land. And Numbers 14 verse 2 and 3 says that the entire nation, the entire congregation of Israel, grumbled against God. Why did you bring us all this way to die? It was better in Egypt. We would rather turn back than follow you. 
And so the problem in the covenant relationship is not that God's standards are too high or that his expectations are too unfair because they're righteous and just. But the problem is that we are too unfaithful. Did you get that? It's not that God is too unfair. It's that we are too unfaithful. And it's not just Israel in the Old Testament. It's all of us. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 declares that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, every one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, our better high priest, the iniquity of us all. And so there's a question that Jesus asked that I think is very important for us. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, speaking to very religious folk, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Is that you this morning? That you and I, we've experienced so much of God's blessing and his provision, his forgiveness and his love. But when his word and his will call us out about a decision or a direction, about your attitude or your actions, about your marriage or your money, how are you saying no to him? How are you acting in a way that you would rather go your own way? How many times have you promised to God something that you would stop or that you would change and find yourself failing and falling again and again and again? In this relationship, it's not the standards of God or the, his expectations that are wrong. The problem is us. We're unable and unfaithful in keeping a covenant relationship with God. So if this old covenant relationship doesn't work, how are the new promises of Jesus better? Let's finish this DTR and make sure that we understand how the relationship is changing. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, <coughs> for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So here's the key to this whole passage. This is not just defining the relationship. It is completely redefining it completely. And so in verse 10, instead of the righteousness and the will of God being written on stone tablets kept in a box in the Ark of the Covenant or being written on white paper on a dust, in a dusty Bible that's sitting on your shelf, it's being written instead in our minds and on our hearts instead of an external system of rules and regulations and religion that you're unable to keep. It's being written, in, it's becoming an internal relationship, transforming us from the inside outward so that we can know him, so that we can obey his will because we are becoming his children. We are becoming his people, he claims us to be. And so it's internal. Secondly, it's also personal. In verse 11, 
that you and I won't be dependent on other priests or pastors to teach us about God, to mediate between us and God, because we'll know him for ourselves, that his will and his word will be written on our hearts, and that his righteousness and relationship will transform us from within, and that it won't be that some people who are more schooled and educated will understand God better. It says that that all of us, from the least of them to the greatest of them, will have this closeness with God. And so I think about this way. After a long day of preschool, my daughter Violet comes home, and she has to sit at the kitchen table and do her homework. But for a four-year-old, after a long eight- to nine-hour day, she's tired. It's kind of a struggle. And so oftentimes, there's wailing and gnashing of teeth as we're doing homework, both my daughter and me. Now, eventually, she'll do the homework. But is that obedience when she does so? No, it's compliance because she's uh, forced to do what she's told. And so my wife, Melissa, has been coaching me. How do we set her up to succeed by uh, giving her attainable steps and giving her positive feedback and and making sure that I speak a lot of life-giving encouragement and love into my daughter as she's trying to wrestle with uh, her little preschool homework. And what we discover is that when Violet is doing her homework with a joyful attitude because she's empowered by her dad, what is that? That's obedience, right? And the difference between compliance and obedience is the willingness that comes because of the power of a personal and intimate internalized relationship with her dad. And so the point here in this section of the scripture is that Jesus, as a better high priest, he moves us from external rules about God in the old covenant to an internal relationship with God in the new. You understand? Where it's not simply we know things about him, we know him personally, intimately. And how do we get to know him in such an intimate manner? Verse 12 tells us it's because you and I get to experience the magnitude of his mercy and his grace poured out into our lives. That as he forgives all of our sin and washes us clean continuously, permanently, eternally, that all these things make us feel closer to God. That as we experience the despair of our sin and the breathless wonder of grace, that there's something powerful that happens to us, that we really know him and experience him in a very personal and intimate level. And so last Sunday, we celebrated Thanksgiving with a baptism. And as exciting as those milestones are, as as a baptism is, my favorite part actually is what comes after the baptism, when people give a testimony about what led them to Jesus, what led them to make this commitment of their hearts and their lives to him. And my favorite stories are the ones where people are talking about this distance that they experienced from God before they met him. I was hurt by life. I was angry with God. I was sinning like crazy. I was failing as a husband, as a mom. I was failing as a person. And then I met Jesus. And then you watch them as they, they share with us in tears and in joy simultaneously as they recount My life was a mess, and it still kind of is, 
But whether I've screwed up for the 10th time or the 10,000th time, that I'm overwhelmed by Jesus' presence and his forgiveness and his acceptance and his closeness, that every time that I mess up, I, I can still sense how much he loves me, how much he's for me, how much he's changing me and cleansing me. You see, our high priest, when he has come, has changed the game. And so I want to ask you, are you just following religious rules or do you meet with Jesus? Are you walking with him and talking with him throughout the day like an old friend? Or is your relationship with Jesus simply a set of rules and religion? You see, this isn't simply a cosmetic change. This isn't putting new clothes on an old covenant as if the Old Testament law were being moved from binding requirements to, I guess, nice suggestions. God is not saying, you know, you don't have to get a circumcision. You don't have to give a tithe. You don't have to abstain from bacon. But I, God, kind of prefer it. What's happening here, verse 13, is that the old covenant is what? It's obsolete. It's ready to vanish. In other words, it's done. It's over. And the reason why is because the law of the Old Covenant is completely fulfilled in the righteousness and the sacrifice of Jesus, our great high priest, our better high priest. He replaces it with a new covenant because shadows dissipate now that the light has come. Do you understand? So I want to ask you this morning, what defines your relationship with God? Are you living in the shadow of religion or are you living in the light of Christ? Do you know about Jesus or do you actually know him? As we take communion this morning, perhaps you need a DTR with God today. So I want to invite you to spend a moment in reflection, in prayer, inviting the Holy Spirit to reveal any decisions or directions or any area or attitude of your life where you are living with an old covenant mentality, where you're experiencing distance instead of the presence of God, where you're living by your old covenant efforts instead of your new covenant intimacy with Jesus. Draw close to God by our high priest's new and better covenant instead of its shadow. You and I, were never going to get closer to God by our morality and our ability or by trying harder or doing more. And it's not because he's too unfair, but because you and I were too unfaithful. And so that's why this new covenant is exactly what we need if God is going to replace the shadows with reality to free us from our externalism and our ritualism and our traditionalism so that our faith and our worship and our life can be radically spiritual and personal and intimate with Jesus to blow away all the shadows of the Old Testament. My prayer for you this morning and in this Advent season is that you and I, we would grasp how precious this new covenant is, that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better relationship for us, that it doesn't leave us in the bondage of distance from God or the bondage of religion or the bondage of sin. It frees us to delight in God and in the will of God written on our hearts. So we just spend a quiet moment reflecting, defining the relationship with God, seeing how he defines it. May it encourage you. May it set you free this morning. Now, as we 
prepare to take a time of communion. I hope you prepared some bread and the cup. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes to us, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. And so, as you prepare the bread, and as you prepare the cup, we're going to take it together after a time of reflection, after this next song. But I want you simply to come before the throne of God and recognize that your great high priest, Jesus, that he made a sacrifice, he made an offering to God, his own body, his own blood, and that we can experience such breathless wonder of grace poured out upon us that draws us close in intimacy to him. And so take a moment as the next song plays to simply reflect and ask God before we take communion together, Lord, what is my relationship with you like this morning? May you discover that there is a God who's been waiting to draw you close to him through our better high priest today. Heavenly Father, before we take communion, before we worship, we praise you and we give thanks to you. We invite your Holy Spirit to remind us again to define our relationship with you, to set us free from the bondage of religion and rules, not because your standards are not good. They are perfect but we recognize we're unable to meet those standards on our own. And so we want to be part of a healthy relationship, a a transcending relationship that transforms our hearts and our lives, that we can live closer and closer to you, that we can experience more of Jesus, that we can become more and more like him because of the work of your Holy Spirit, of your Son, your High Priest, ministering to our hearts. So help us to be honest with you this morning. Would you uncover the parts of our lives where we are not experiencing Jesus and his better covenant for us? And may we come back into holy fellowship with you once again through the blood of Christ, through the body of Christ given to us. Help us to meet with you in this quiet moment. Amen.